0: Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Good morning, Generations Church. How are we? It's good to see you. It's such an honor to be here. It's wonderful to be home. So this is not the space where I originally inhabited what was the Canton campus of Mount Pierre North in 2012, but what a space this is. And it's wonderful to be back, and it's wonderful to see you. I'm grateful to Pastor Jeremy for this invitation especially, and I'm grateful to him for his influence in my life. So when I first started ministry right out of Lee University in 2009, I was a pimply-faced 22-year-old kid, and he brought me and my wife on to serve as college pastor under him, and then two years later to serve as a worship pastor, and he has played a tremendous role in my ministerial development. He let me fail and succeed and was there to give me wisdom along the way. And I owe much of my ministerial life and journey to his leadership and friendship. I know that you know this, but it's important that I say it. You have outstanding leaders in Pastor Jeremy and Corey. Let's hear it for them. They may be watching online. Outstanding, outstanding leaders. And it's so cool to see what God is doing here. I mean, the acquisition of this property, that's amazing. And then the stories of testimonies and growth and all of that. And Just to think of what God's done in 12 years, 12 years more, who knows, right? It's exciting to see. So it's wonderful to be with you. If you have your Bibles with you, open them with me, please, to the book of Psalms, chapter 133. Psalm 133 is where we are. If you don't know where the Psalms are, that's okay. Just throw open your Bible. You've got about a 90% chance you'll land in the Psalms. It's the longest book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, if you're on your phone, that's okay, too. The Lord doesn't love you as much as he loves the others. Um, but, you know, it's all right. We'll have an altar call here in a moment. You'll be fine. Um, Psalm 133 is where we are. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story, an important story, or at least a half story. And it begins on the first day of the week several thousands of years ago. Um, first day of the week, the disciples were gathered in the back recesses of a Jerusalem home. They had locked the doors, drawn the curtains, armed the security system, and placed all conversation on hold, only whispers and gestures. There was a single candle flickering in the room as the light, no one in or out unless for emergencies, unless, for example, you're going to tend to the body of your beloved teacher and friend. Earlier that morning, the beloved disciple and Simon Peter had ventured out to go see the tomb because they had heard from Mary Magdalene that the body had been stolen, but that just left more questions than it did answers. And to make matters worse, Mary Magdalene had come back a few hours later, breathless and rapping on the door, saying something about having seen the man she just reported missing, and those disciples just thought she was a desperate and disappointed woman. The last thing they needed were rumors circulating about Jewish ghosts and a stolen body because they knew that the mob that had killed their teacher would have them next. They were guilty by association with this failed Jewish Messiah who had a massive God complex. So what was the solution in that moment on that day? To wait it out. To sit in that room and to wait in fear and uncertainty and tears and longing to wait. But notice... Verse 19 of John 20, he says that the disciples were all together in that room. All right, we'll come back to that here in just a second. Psalm 133, you've just finished a series entitled Figuring Out Family. Now, this is not necessarily a part of that series, but we might consider it an appendix to the series at the end of the series to expand what we consider family to be, to be not just the people that we share a roof with, but to be the family family. God Psalm 133 is in a unique place in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms. It's in the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that are unique because they're the only collection of Psalms within the book of Psalms that are all found together. So we know, for example, that David wrote several psalms, but they're scattered throughout the 150 psalms. The Psalms of Ascent are unique. They're like a mini-EP within the broader record, right, 120 to 134, and they're unique also for their content. They're concerned with small world family stuff. They're songs likely written by mothers and fathers as they made their way to Jerusalem to worship God. And so these are songs that you would listen to in the minivan on the drive to church, that kind of song. They're short, they're memorable, and they celebrate family themes. In Psalm 120, it starts with desperation and loneliness. This poor man is alone, and he's afflicted, and he's longing for peace and only has conflict. But by the time we reach the end of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 133 and 134, we're getting... The a foretaste of the destination, what the psalmist longs for. And Psalm 133 is a celebration of that longing, the community that he's finally found, the family of God that he's yearned for on the journey. Psalm 133 is a famous one. It's a psalm that I often heard in youth group when people weren't getting along. And the youth pastor wanted us to be united. And so he would read this psalm for us and tell us on the mission trip, y'all quit with the drama, get over it, be God's united people. It's famous for that, but it's short and it's beautiful. We're going to work our way through I'm going to read all of it for us and then we'll have a brief introduction and work through some points together. But here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 133, verse 1. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron. Aaron? Running down upon... Oh, running down over the collar of his ropes. I got distracted. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life, forevermore. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? Amen. All right, so let's parachute into this psalm together. Let's do so. I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask you... A question that helps to frame what we're getting at as we approach this psalm, and it's this. What is the Spirit of God up to? What is the Spirit of God doing? Our worship services are filled with all kinds of invitation for the Spirit to come into this place and to invade and to transform and to encounter, and in severe moments like we just had, we even ask the Spirit to flood this place and fill the atmosphere, right? Natural disasters used to describe God. That's terrifying, isn't it? Flood this place and fill the atmosphere. What are we asking for when we ask these kinds of questions? I grew up in a Pentecostal church in a Pentecostal environment. Do we have anybody that grew up in a kind of Pentecostal environment in the room? Okay, good. Put those hands good and high. The Lord sees those hands. All right, so <laughs> Pentecostals. We Pentecostals are known for our emotional expression. We're known for our physical experience of the Spirit of God. Here's the problem, dear friends, that when I was growing up, I was a Pentecostal kid in a non-Pentecostal body. So I still am a kind of Pentecostal kid in a non-Pentecostal body, which is to say that I'm not in touch with my body. I rarely even know that I have one. One comedian says that his body is just the meat suit that carries his brain from one room to another. That is me. I don't know that I have a body. I don't hardly eat lunch most days. I'm like, why am I in pain? Oh, it's four o'clock and I've only had one cup of coffee today. That kind of thing, right? So growing up in church, we would sing these songs of the Spirit flooding the atmosphere. And that terrified me because I know that when we started singing those kinds of things, the worship service got weird. You know what I mean? And so as a kid, to survive Pentecost, you have to come up with a litmus test of when things are gonna get weird. I had a list, you wanna hear my list? You don't have a choice, here's my list. Sign number one, things are going to get weird, ready? You, in, you invited a friend to church with you that day. If so, there's a 100% chance it's going to be the weirdest service in that church's history. Your poor Presbyterian friend has never heard tongues, they've never seen someone run the aisle, They've never seen a shofar, but they're going to have all of that, that particular morning. They might even get the snakes out that day. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We could do that here in a minute. I have them in the back. But second sign, is the service in the morning or at night? If it's at night, buckle up. That's when the Spirit of God shows up. Third, are you at summer camp or fall retreat? It's mandatory that services be four to five hours long. The Spirit of God likes to show up in those environments. Four, what about the communicator themselves? Are they using a handheld or are they using a headset? If they're truly Pentecostal, the wand of the Spirit is the handheld mic. How loud are they talking? Also, what about the sweat droplets? The Holy Spirit is carried in the perspiration. The more they sweat, the greater the anointing. And then fifth, how many times have you sung the bridge of that song? The ninth or tenth time with the key change is mandatory that the Spirit of God shows up, right? And so, these are the moments that I know as a kid, to watch out, the Spirit's coming, yeah? Now, I say this as when he's fully committed to those kinds of things. Those are beautiful things, and just because some have manipulated those things in the past does not mean everything is broken. God uses imperfect instruments all the time, and so we're all God's dysfunctional family, and God is... Loving and gracious with us. But to back to the original question, what is the whence and wherefore of all that spiritual flourish of activity? Well, We might say this, what is the Spirit of God up to? The Spirit of God is summing all things up in God. The Spirit is the ecstatic movement of God's own self, outside of himself, to catch you and me up. And everything you've ever seen in this life, even that weird dog of yours, to catch all things up, to participate in God's life. John Calvin said that the Spirit is the means by which God unites us to himself. We're caught up to share in Jesus' union with the Father. The Spirit of God is not uniting us because the Spirit is all about Unity for the sake of unity, like a bad politician's platform. But instead, the Spirit of God is catching us up into unity only because God Himself is united. He's acting for God, and in acting for God, He's acting for us. It's the same movement, it's the same movement of love. That all things at the end, God might be all and in all. But get at this idea. Psalm 133 is our door into this reality. And so three simple thoughts on the Spirit as we see in Psalm 133 together. Point number one is this. We are gathered by the Spirit, and just so our unity is found in and by God's Spirit alone. We are gathered by the Spirit, and just so our unity of the family of God is found in and by God's Spirit alone alone. Do we have any poetry fans in the room? Would you raise your hand if you like poetry? There's four of us. All right, the rest of you can leave. All right, so there's a handful of us that like poetry. Many of us got rid of poetry the second that our literature class ended, but it's important when we read poetry to pay attention not only to what is there, but also to how it's there. So let's work with verse one, starting with uh, sorry, uh, of, of Psalm 133. Here we go. Verse 1, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. When you and I read the Bible, we're accustomed to look for a task or command. We want to find something from the Bible that we must do. And to be sure, Scripture has a lot to say about our ethics what we're supposed to do to honor God. But most of the time when we're reading the Bible, God does not address us first in the imperative mood, for those that like grammar, but in the indicative mood, which is to say that God does not address us first and foremost by telling us what to do, but instead by joyously announcing what God has done and is doing and will do. And this is one of those cases. This is a joyous exclamation Notice what the poet could have said. The psalmist could have said, be ye united, for it is good and pleasant to do so. That's not what he says. What does the psalmist say? Well, it starts with a particle in Hebrew that's probably not translated in your Bible. It's the word hine, and it means something like, look, which is an exclamation of discovery an exclamation of wonder and surprise kind of like a child when it sees something on the nature walk that he wants you to pay attention to right look dad look what i've found and then it's doubly if not triply redundant the poet might have said it's good to live together in unity no that's not enough it's good and pleasant no 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 that's not enough either it's what how good How good. That's like something you would say after taking a bite out of a delicious meal, right? And how beautiful is what the word means. How aesthetically pleasing. Something you might think to yourself when you go on a date with your crush, right? How beautiful. These are words of discovery. The poet's not telling you to do anything, the poet has found something beautiful and he wants you to see it too. What's he celebrating? Well, he's celebrating brothers living together, quite literally. Sisters are included, of course. Brothers and sisters living together. Now, your translation might add, in unity. That's a good reading of the text, but here's the thing. In unity is not in the Hebrew. It just says brothers and sisters living together. That's good and pleasing on its own. Now, as a parent of two who just went back to school a couple of weeks ago, it's always better when they get along than when they don't get along, right? I've played referee for three months and it's time to go back to school, you know? And so uh, I, I, I recognize that unity is important, but it's already good when all of us are under the same roof together. Here kicks in our performance drive. If God wants unity, If God wants community, then community we will give God. Let's get to work. Let's be united. How do we do it? Well, first and foremost, we cannot be the united army of God if we do not have matching T-shirts. Let's start with matching (laughs) T-shirts, bracelets perhaps, mugs, bumper stickers, the important things. Now that we look alike, we're all in red or black or blue, whatever color we decide. Let's start then, secondly, by agreeing more and disagreeing less. Doesn't that sound good? That's a noble endeavor. Here's the problem. We can't even agree on the t-shirt design and color, much less the more important things like doctrine and theological positions and scriptural translations. Here's the thing. We can't even agree on the things that should be on the list that constitute the nature of our agreement. And even beyond that goes without saying that we're going to disagree in our various positions on the topics about which we originally disagreed. You see the problem? We're in a spiral. We're disagreeing already. Some of you have walked in the room. You disagree already with something here. You disagreed with the song lyric or the style of the music or the time you were asked to be here. You disagree with the sermon that you're hearing right now. Some of you might go and post these disagreements on Yelp or Facebook or social media because, heaven forbid, the world be without our opinions for more than 10 minutes. Disagree all the time, don't we? Yeah, so what are we going to do about that? Well, let's just assume we get the right people in the room and we achieve agreement finally. It's small enough. It's intentional enough. It's united enough that we agree. We agree on things from T-shirt design, to scriptural translation, to doctrinal positions, to the times of the service, all of it. 100% agreement top to bottom. I would venture to say that if we accomplish that, that's a community not created in the image of Jesus Christ, but in the image of ourselves. That's a community we're in. We're all speaking the same language, but to use a scriptural example, we're using that language to build a tower into the heavens. We're all speaking the same language, but we're doing so at the cost of Tongues of fire that have rested upon our brothers and sisters to proclaim the wonders of God in languages and ways that are not our own way. You see, unity in the hands of of, of human beings inevitably becomes uniformity. We're always prone to just make others into our own image. You know what? God doesn't have to punish that either. God's punishment of that is to say, you want a community that looks just like you? I'll let you have it. Because even when we claim diversity, we often do it to enhance our own image. It's a corporate initiative to sell a few extra shoes or something, or it's something to prove to the world that I'm inclusive and I like other people. We do it even to enhance our own self-actualization, but God's going to say, fine, you wanna live in your own echo chamber and, and deprive yourself of the truth, I'll let you do that. You want to deprive yourself of seeing my face in the image of someone not like you, that's its own kind of punishment. And here is where the scripture is smarter than we are. What is celebrated? How good and pleasant it is when who lives together in unity? Brothers and sisters, how many of you have siblings in the room? Virtually everyone. How many of you got to choose those siblings? Yeah, very few. If you did, we need to talk, right? Okay. (laughs) We love our siblings, don't we? We do, even as an adult, right? I love my sister. I have a younger sister. I love her. But there's something about our siblings, even at this age, they show up for Thanksgiving. They're there for a couple hours, and it's, it's time for you to go home. You know what I mean? I love you, but you need to go home. And so, any of us only children in the room? Wow. What was it like never to be told no? Um, so... All of that to say, we don't get to choose our brothers and sisters, and so it is in the family of God. I don't choose who is my brother and sister in Christ. I receive them. God chooses them for me. As Eugene Peterson says, there are no only children in God's family. You see, my brothers and sisters in Christ are not those with whom I agree, not those I like to be around, not those I prefer to be with. They're those upon whom the Spirit of God has been poured out. And by that Spirit, we both of us together cry, Abba, Father, as we share in Jesus' own relationship to the Father. So the church, therefore, is not a group of people who have a united ideology and approach to life and all of that kind of stuff. If you want uniformity, it's easy to find it. Walk right out of this room and go to the nearest special interest group or political rally. There's going to be a bunch of them in 2024. You'll see a kind of uniformity there. But the church is unique. As we are gathered by the Spirit of God, here's how we're unique. We find ourselves standing next to people who don't look like us or think like us, who are not in our life stage, who don't vote like we do, all that kind of stuff. And we have the audacity to claim But these brothers and sisters are not merely our friends or fellow churchgoers, but these crazy people, these people who talk too much or talk too little, they're sitting right beside you, right? Talk too much or talk too little, who get a hold of you and want to pray with you in the hallway, who can't sing. You just heard them try a few minutes ago, bless their hearts, you know? These people who have coffee breath and get a hold of you and tell you stories, and you're just trying to get to the car. These people, whom you would not choose for yourself, are nevertheless not just your brothers and sisters, but God's extended presence to you. We might want to have different brothers and sisters, but God's not in the business of giving us what we want. He's in the business of giving us what we need. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great 20th century German theologian, martyr under the Nazi regime, He says it this way about our Christian fellowship. The fact that we are brothers and sisters only through Jesus Christ is of immeasurable significance. Therefore, the other who comes face to face with me earnestly and devoutly seeking community is not the brother or sister with whom I am to relate in the community. He's saying, I'm not just in community with people I go to small group with. You're in community with the stranger that sits on the other side of the room right now as you are in Christ together. My brother or sister is instead that other person who's been redeemed by Christ, absolved from sin and called to faith in eternal life. Our community consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. That not only is true at the beginning, as if in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. We don't start with Jesus and build on it. It's just Jesus from moment one to moment eternity. But also remains so for all the future and to all eternity. Here's the bad news, y'all. You're stuck with me. Not just for the next 15 minutes. I mean, you're stuck with me for a billion years and a billion more. That person that you're sitting next to, you're stuck with them for a long time. We better get along now. We've got some work to do. I have community with others and will continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us will recede. And the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the only thing that's alive between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ, we really do have one another. We have one another completely and for all eternity. I know that I'm being led by the Spirit when I am led to call my enemy my brother or my sister. See, Psalm 23 promises that the Lord will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies, but that doesn't mean that the enemy isn't invited to the table too. So we find our unity only by the Spirit. We got to keep going. I'm okay on time. Point number two. We are filled with the Spirit and just so we find our purpose in and by God's Spirit alone. We are filled by the Spirit and just so we find our purpose in and by God's Spirit alone. So the psalmist says, it's so good that I, I can't even express to you what it's like, so I'm just going to have to use similes, images to get at it. And Here's the first one. It is like the precious oil. Now, this is key. Precious is the word tov in Hebrew. The very first verse says, how good and pleasant. The word for good is the word tov. So how good and pleasant is like the good oil, not the bad oil or the mediocre oil, the good oil. It's like the good oil on the head running down upon the beard. Now, let's think about this for a second. First of all, that's a lot of oil, isn't it? We promised we would anoint you with oil, but imagine it's not just at the top of your head. You can't just smell it. You can't just see it, but you can feel the oil hitting the top of your head and running over your eyes, that viscous goop and down into your chin, into the collar of your robes. That's a lot of oil, isn't it? Why this oil? Well, oil is a sign of God's provision. It's a natural resource in the land of Israel. It was a gift exchange between the elite and the aristocracy. It's a sign of God's joy and blessing. Ecclesiastes 9 says, don't ever leave your house. Don't go to a party without oil on your head. It's like putting on perfume or cologne before you go hang out with your friends. Yeah? So it's a sign of celebration and blessing. It's a sign of healing because it was used to treat wounds. But then you keep reading and you soon realize that it's not just any oil, but it's on beard of Aaron running down into the collar of his robe. So what starts out as this abundant, overflowing blessing is now if you can look through the viscous goop, you catch somebody's eyes. And that's the high priest of Aaron, Moses's brother. Why does that matter? Aaron, of course, the first one set apart to lead Israel as priest. And so you realize now this isn't just any oil this is an oil that sets us apart. And where does it come from? Do you earn it? By no means. Did you ask for it? Nope. Can you pay for it? No. You received it just because God delights in pouring it out upon you. First Peter 2 says that we are a royal priesthood. You, dear friends, are priests. Put it on the resume for your next job interview. It says here you're a priest. Yes, sir. I am since I was age five I've been serving as priest, which means, therefore, that we are priests to the world, but we are also priests to one another. You want proof that God loves you. I don't need to show you a miracle to do it. You want proof that God loves you. Yes, he loves you. You can look at the sunset and all the beautiful natural wonders, but you want the ultimate physical concrete proof. It's found in the brother or sister who sits right beside you. There isn't a Christian, some of you are like, I'm not so sure, but there isn't a Christian that you've encountered in your life that is not a priest, a physical extension of God towards you. We are priests toward one another. So God pours out his spirit as we are just willing to gather. And in that spirit outpouring, we find a purpose, but it doesn't end there. He keeps going. He says this in the next section, it's like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Some of you have been wondering, what does the Bible say about Mountain Dew? It's a bad dad joke, isn't it? Isn't that great? Which one does God prefer? Code Red? Baja Blast, perhaps? The original? Probably Code Red, Red Letter Edition. I don't know, it just depends. Everybody wants Taco Bell now, don't we? All right, so... It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. What's the dew of Hermon? That sounds odd. sounds very biblical, doesn't it? Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet high. Has anybody been to the land of Israel before in this room? If you have, it's in the northernmost part of Israel, and you can see it from just about anywhere. It's this iconic landscape mark to Israel, a sign of God's provision and majesty to them. It's very high, and beneath the snowfall line, it's not just a little bit of dew like you have on your lawn when you walk out in the morning and the grass clippings stick to your feet. It's not like that kind of dew. It's a massive natural resource that comes cascading down the mountains and feeds all of the wildlife. And this is a blessing from heaven as it's conceived in the Old Testament. But here's the other thing. It's not just falling down the mountain. It's going where? Running down to... Mount Zion. Now, where's Mount Zion? That's where God's temple is. That's in Jerusalem. That's 130 miles away from Mount Hermon. That's not even close. And not only that, Mount Zion is only about 2,200 feet high, 2,500 feet high, something like that, much smaller than Mount Hermon. But notice how abundant the blessing of the Spirit is. As we are gathered, God pours out his abundant life-giving waters that are so overwhelming, they don't just flood the natural landscape, but come flooding all the way from north to south. And if you know your Bible well, you know that after the reign of Solomon, the tribes of Israel are divided between north and south. But here, the waters of the Spirit are poured out such that north and south are now united and that we are flooded by the grace of God. In this room this morning, if you have the eyes of faith to see it, In this room is the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon every head that has entered this place and is the abundant life-giving waters that draws us together beyond our disagreements and disunities to be the one people of God. Our unity is not in our brand. Our unity is not in our shared convictions, although those things are important. Our unity is in the Spirit, and it's in that Spirit that we also have a calling. Third and finally, we are blessed by the Spirit, and just so, we have a future in and by God's Spirit alone. We are blessed by the Spirit, and just so, we have a future in and by God's Spirit alone. So after these two images, the oil and the water, and notice too, as you read the poetry, oil moves slowly as it's poured out. Waters move quickly, so the image picks up pace as you move from oil to water. And now, what does the psalmist say in his concluding remarks? For there the Lord ordains his blessing. Now, that's interesting. The word ordained is not just to give something. It's not just to make something holy. It's the word tzavah in Hebrew, and it means to command. It means to appoint. It means to direct. For there the Lord, this is the first mention of God that we've had. We've seen images of God, signs of God, but now the Lord is ordaining, appointing his blessing. And Here's what's so cool. It's not just a blessing, this weekly gathering, it's not just a blessing of a, a pick-me-up to help you get through a case of the Mondays tomorrow. It's not just a kind of encouraging note to help you through a hard time. I hope you do receive that, by the way, in this gathering and any gathering of God's people. But what does he say? It's life everlasting. Isn't that interesting? It's life everlasting. That when the people of God are gathered, when we are just willing to be under the roof together, we don't have to be united. Let's just be in the same room, cage match, right? We're just going to hang out together. Then as we gather and wait for the spirit of God, God says, you want a taste of heaven? You don't know what heaven's like. Then it's right here in the concrete physicality of my presence to you in your brother and in your sister. When's the last time that you were with people that you love more than anything in the world? All of you together under one roof, family and friends. You're in that moment. There's no agenda for that moment. There's no business meeting. Nobody's about to sell you something. You're not waiting for the pitch at the end of the meeting. But you're sitting there around the table or around the fire, wherever you happen to be. And you find yourself losing track of time. You know that feeling? You don't know if it's been five minutes or five hours. You're laughing so hard your belly hurts, and you're totally yourself. You don't have a guard up. There's no social face. There's no trying to impress anyone. You're not worried about where your body is or what kind of tone of voice you use, but you're totally yourself and they're totally themselves and you look at your watch and you go my word it's after one o'clock we got to be getting home we got work tomorrow we got church tomorrow etc that might have been 10 years ago it might have been 24 hours ago I don't know but in that moment as you lost track of time the concrete meal in front of you their presence that laughter that wonder that's the spirit's gift and saying you want more of that I've got an eternity waiting right ahead of your future. It's almost here, and you can taste it in our gatherings together. But here's the beautiful thing. It's not just going to be with those people that we've grown to love and trust, but with all the saints across the ages, present, past, and future, laughing around the table of God. That is heaven, taste of eternity, and the laughter that we share together. If you know the book of Acts... Simon Peter wasn't the most inclusive and loving of persons, yeah? He always does dumb things. But God teaches him this lesson in a very interesting way. There's a soldier by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile, which means he's not Jewish. But he loves God. He's generous. He cares for others. He prays every day. And on one particular afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, an angel shows up in his house. Says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. Here's what I want you to do. A soldier and a delegation, I want you to go to Joppa, which is not close, a day's journey. Go to Joppa. Simon Peter's there. You don't know him, but go and get him and bring him back. That's all the angel says. Cornelius is obedient, so he sends a delegation of two servants and a soldier. They make their way to Joppa, which is a beach town. Simon Peter is staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Confused yet? I know. But Simon Peter's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. He's just hanging out. The next day, as the delegation arrives, Simon Peter is hungry. It's lunchtime. It's noon, goes up on the roof, and while he's sitting there, he gets into some kind of a hunger trance, and God gives him a vision, and this vision, a sheet is lowered from the heavens, and he sees all kinds of unclean animals in the Jewish tradition, animals he can't eat without violating God's law, and he hears a voice that says, kill and eat, and Simon Peter's like, whoa, 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 this food has never touched my lips, I'm not unclean in this way, and God says, don't call unclean what I've declared clean. Don't call unclean what I've declared clean. God says it three times and then the vision goes away and Simon Peter's just left staring into the void going, am I just hungry or was that God, right? The delegation shows up, they knock on the gate and as soon as they show up while Simon Peter's still on the roof, God's voice comes to Simon Peter and says, these men are here, I've sent them, go with them. He invites them into the home. The next day they set out for Cornelius's house. Simon Peter and his buddies with this delegation, they don't even know where they're going. They show up to the front doorstep of Cornelius, and Cornelius is so kind and hospitable, he bows before Simon Peter. Simon Peter says, whoa, 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 I'm just a human being, I don't don't need this, right? Walks into the door of the home. This is the first thing Simon Peter says, it's against God's law for me to be here. (laughs) Isn't that a terrible intro statement, right? I would rather not be here, but here I am, right? So he says, it's against God's law for me to be here, but... God has told me not to declare unclean what he's called clean. And so Cornelius says, here's what's happened. He's gathered all of his friends and family. The house is packed. Tells them the story of the angel that's visited him. And Simon Peter says, okay, well, here's the gospel. He proclaims him the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And as he is doing so, before he can even finish speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon the room and they all speak in other tongues. Peter's Jewish buddies are freaking out because these Gentiles are now declaring the wonders of God. They're not supposed to have God, and now they're declaring God's wonders. And they said, well, if they have received the Holy Spirit, then what's preventing them from being baptized? And they're baptized right there. Well, the next day or a couple of days later, Simon Peter goes to Jerusalem, and all of his more exclusive buddies say, I heard you've been hanging out in Gentile houses. That's not supposed to be what happened. and Peter tells them the story of what has happened. And this is what he says as he ends the story in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came upon them as he had come upon us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord has said. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand it? What gestures of unity is the Spirit of God asking of you today? How might we reframe our brothers and sisters that we inhabit in this room or across God's global church that we might say, if they're your children, God, they're my brothers and they're my sisters. I'm not just willing to put up with them, but I praise you for them. When we last saw our disciples, they were huddled in the house, terrified, but they were all together One place, John 20 says this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Oh, how good and pleasant it is. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. It's like the precious oil on the head running down, like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. For there, our Lord commands the blessing, life everlasting. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, in our experiences, in our hearts, we are so disunited. We hold things against one another, grudges, we take offense, we offend, we hurt, we harm, we become embittered. And yet you and your grace, as we've gathered nevertheless, pours out your spirit, You pour out your spirit upon us in ways that we could never imagine or understand. We thank you, Lord, for that grace. We thank you for that anointing. We thank you for your life-giving waters. We thank you that you are uniting us even despite ourselves draw us further into you. And as we, as you do so, draw us further toward one another. We love you and give you praise for your blessings in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day and God bless.